You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. This morning out of Acts chapter 17. So turn your Bibles over there and we'll pick up in verse 13. And um, Paul has been traveling around on his second missionary journey. And um, he's went through... Philippi and Europe, and then he would go to Thessalonica and Berea and then travel. And all these places, people are being saved, churches are being planted. And then he would travel by ship 200 miles to Greece. And that's where we're, we, we, we came last week. And we're going to be in the city of Athens this morning. And um, Paul is going to give a, a very, you know, powerful, you know, message uh, relating to all of this. Um, as far as it relates to what the culture was like there in that day and how he very compassionately, lovingly was able to be used by God to minister to these people who didn't know God. And um, so if you're, you're again, you know, man, I'm a Christian. I'd like to share my faith. I'd like some good examples. This is one of the most classic uh, messages Paul ever is inspired to give. And we can pull from this some really great, um, ideas on how to share our faith with others, especially those who just don't know God um, at all. Paul, in verse 13, um, it would say that there were Jews from Thessalonica that, um, that had, you know, heard word about Paul preaching in Berea. They came and, like, ran him out of town, basically. And so that's what led him to leave Berea, come to uh, Thessalonica, and um, God is not done with him. God is going to continue to use him. He's going to be very effective here in this setting. Verse 16, while he waited for what would have been Silas and Timothy and the rest of the team that stayed behind in Berea, in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city that was, it was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace, notice, daily with those who happen to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they encountered him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be proclaiming or a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And so after taking this 200-mile journey by boat, he finds himself in this very happening prominent city of, um, of Athens. Athens' heyday would have been three to four centuries earlier, but it was still a real happening city. We would have known it in Paul's day as like, oh, this was the center of philosophy. Oh, man, th- this is where Socrates hung out and, 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 and Plato and Aristotle and, and uh, the whole, like, Epicurus, who formed the whole movement of the Epicureans. That's where he is from as well. And Zeno, the founder of Stoicism. Wow, this is like the place. And they still had an educational system and were still known for that in Paul's day. But that was overshadowed by something else. A couple of centuries will do that to a country, to a major city. And it was overshadowed by their idolatry, by their religion. It would be like if you came to America 150 years ago, 
You traveled all around America and you saw their beliefs, the belief systems. You went to their schools and you went, oh, that's like the number one book that they're using in the educational system. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a God, a Judeo-Christian country. And, and there's these freedoms and these liberties that people have taken, you know, like freedom with. And really, you would say there was a, a real fear of God that marked the culture 150 years ago. You'd walk around and go, that's what America was 150 years ago. Go there 50 years later. It would change. Walk through that same country that in every school yard and school house, this was the book. You go, well, the book's not there anymore. In those houses, in public settings where people prayed and squares where they, they prayed, they're not praying there anymore. They have, they have laws that have banned that. And, and we just go, it's been overrun by a different philosophy. It's been overrun. Their religious structure, the Judeo-Christian religious structure, is so different. It's so different that they call us a post-Christian era. You know that that's documented now? Well, Paul went to a place where one time it was all about the philosophy of the Socrates and the Plato's and whatnot, and now it was dominated by Greek myths and Greek gods. The population in this city, when he walked in, in that day, the secular historians tell us there was 10 thousand people that made up Athens. But they also kept a document as to the amount of gods that they served. The Greek gods, the 12 popular gods, were known as the Olympians. There was 12 of them. You can go through all of them from the Apollos all the way down, and they're the popular ones, the ones that we know, the Zeus and all of that. But then the downline of that, they called them the minor gods. There was 400 of them. And some of these like guys that visited you know, Athens in that day said that there was over 30,000 statues and altars erected to their gods, little g, in Athens. And that's what Paul walked into. Everywhere he looked, there was just altars to these gods. There were these statues to these, to these gods. It had become a city that was just overrun with paganism and idolatry. It was said that it was easier to find a god, a pagan god of an Athenian than an Athenian male. That was Athens. It says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given, like wholly given over to this. He saw their spiritual barrenness, their spiritual emptiness. He saw that they were completely ignorant of the one true living God. You know, years ago, we would go to Japan in the 90s. I'd just really just go over there, bring bands, do concerts. And Lance, get up there with your harmonica, man. And then I would be done playing my harmonica with the band. And then I would give the gospel. And, and, and these things grew. And it grew to where after about two years, we would go. And they would, these guys that were getting saved would rent these big city civic auditoriums for us. <laughs> what are you guys doing, man? And... And, and we would get there, and they would only advertise through secular media. They didn't want any, there's hardly any Christians in Japan anyway, but they, did, they wanted it to be a secular event, bring in this music from the West, and then you get up and give the gospel. And the first time I ever got up in front of the audience in Japan, a large audience, about 2,000 Japanese that are at a rock concert, and then I come up, there with the harmonica guy, and I start breaking down the word, I opened my Bible to this very passage. 
Because at that point in time, 99.6% of Japan, which is a population half the size of America in the size of California, was either Shinto or Buddhist. So we could go anywhere in Japan and never find a Christian. We would go anywhere in Japan and they didn't know about our God. Our hearts sank. I mean, they just didn't know. That's why we went to this passage. That's why every team that came with us, we made them familiar with about this passage because we felt the bridge between not knowing God and knowing God was to begin to talk about him in terms that they could identify with. And when you talk to people who are alive, they all have the same questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What happens when I'm no longer here, right? Doesn't everybody in their little mind, and so all of the religions in the world try and seek to answer that and rule the one true living God out of that. Welcome to Athens. Welcome to America. Welcome to Paul. Put your, your feet in his sandals and feel the weight in his heart. That's what he saw. He was so moved that he jumped right in, and as he would do, he'd go to the synagogues. Oh, there's people there that are spiritual. They're seeking the God of Judaism. Let's go talk to them. And he would go and reason with the scriptures. Jews would be there. Gentiles would be there. He would go into what they called the Agora, which was a marketplace, an open-air marketplace. Today, you've ever been to Athens? You know, a lot of these structures, as we're going to show some pictures, still there. And every day, he'd just go, and the idea is whoever would talk to Paul, he would talk to them about the Lord. So you got Jews, you got Gentiles, you got you know people in the marketplace, you got these certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So what did they think? What did these like really smart guys of Athens think? Well, the Epicureans they believed in gods, but they believed that the gods were the kind of entities that had nothing to do with the affairs of man. And as a result, the Epicureans became materialist. We use the word epic. It derives from that, that body of people, Epicureans. They lived for pleasure. And I could get into how that played out sensually and sexually, but this is not appropriate. I could get into it how they, they woke up each day and the finest of dining was the goal. You didn't just go to eat. If you were an Epicurean, it was the finest of foods that were available. And you didn't just eat till you were like maxed, packed out full like we do as Americans. Sometimes on Thanksgiving. It was, it was vogue, if you were an Epicurean, to force yourself to remove, to emit what's in your body so that you can continue to have the meal up to three or four times. And they, they did that because the gods that they believed in left them empty because they didn't exist. And so the void they were trying to fill, they were trying to fill that void with just pleasure the max of what the world could give them. The Stoics, they rejected the idolatry of the pagan, you know, worship and all of that, you know. They were were pantheist. They believed that everything in the conceived universe is God. So they believed that creation is God. There's not a God that creates. They believe that creation is God. So the combined substance and force and laws and all that is material that you could see or observe, that's God. And their emphasis was on, was like on discipline and and, and self-control. You were not to react to things. Stoicism is a philosophy that says you're not to react to things. 
You are to make a conscious decision about things and not let those things choose your behavior, dictate your behavior, but you are to dictate your behavior. So they prided themselves on having it together. My way. I did it my way. It's interesting that the two leading philosophers that introduced this whole stoicism to culture, Zeno and Piraeus, both of them in different eras would live this life of control. I'm doing it my way. They would live this life that there is no God, but both of them were so empty that they would take their lives. These two philosophies represented a lot of the, 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 the pagan practices and the, the, the alternatives that religion offered to people, that, that religion offered to the plight of humanity apart from the one true living God. And so one of the groups ridicules Paul, and they call him a, a babbler here. And in the Greek language, the word means seed picker. It's a, it's a, for the intellectuals, they had their own like little words that no one else really understood. And they would, they would see someone that's beneath them, and they would relegate them to someone inferior to them. And they would say, oh, they're not really speaking things they know, that they're convinced of, and they're being educated about. They're like a bird that just picks up seed here and there. It's not their truths or their information. They're just repeating what other people know. He's a babbler. Second group, they were a little bit confused, but they were interested. They were like, well, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. He's kind of like us. And what they did is they took him talking about Jesus. They heard that name. And then they heard the Greek word for resurrection, which is anesthesis. And they thought, oh, that's a separate God. Oh, he's kind of like us. He's into the plurality of God things. Let's maybe reconsider some of the things he's saying. But Paul simply preached the gospel. That's what this is telling us. And and after a while, verse 19, it says, they took him and they brought him uh, to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know these things. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. Well, Paul's bringing some new thing to them. And so, you know, they're like, all right, well, let's check this out. So these, these like hoo-hoo's smart guys in in Athens, heard Paul. They heard what he had to say about his beliefs in the open air marketplaces. And they thought, you know, let's, let's bring him up to our Areopagus. Areopagus is an is a outcropping on a hill. It is a place where, where they would go and they would contemplate all of their beliefs, their philosophies and whatnot. I got some pictures I think that I'm going to show you today of modern day Athens. Um, and maybe you can get those up there here. There we go. So if Paul was right now up on this mountain, we'll show the mountain in a minute, and he were to look over Greece, he would look, he would look, uh, stop. Yeah, okay. Go back a couple, please, if you can. Yeah, you can stop there. He would look down at that very building 2,000 years ago. And he'd go, 
oh, 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 that is the temple that was erected to what they called theism. And it was a, 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 a magnificent building to a pagan deity. Now, you, you move forward again, and if Paul was still standing on this same outcropping and, and sitting there with these philosophers, he would look up at the Areopagus, which is that mountain, and on top of that is the Parthenon. And the Parthenon in that era was a giant temple that was erected to Athena. As Paul is there, he would have seen these temples all around the city. He would have walked past thousands of statues and altars to even get up to that point. Go through a couple more. Um, Again, Uh, I ain't got time to talk. There we go. That's where Paul was. Paul would have entered from the left of the screen, walked up, and stood up on this with all of those temples in his view, with all of those idols in his view. And so the face-off is on. The most exclusive philosophical review board in that era on one side, surrounded by all of these powerless man-made structures, idols, altars, pagan temples. On the other side stood, stood Paul. Paul, divinely empowered, a man who staked everything in his life upon the Savior that he follows. Upon his message, the good news about him, he staked everything on that. That's the face-off. And so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, verse 22, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was, as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Remember again, this group did not respect Paul. This group didn't appreciate him or his beliefs. They didn't appreciate him really being in the open square talking about what he believed. They basically brought him in to kind of peel him back and give him account to his teachings. This would have put Paul on the defense. They have home-filled advantage. This is a very, very tense situation. So it was brilliant for Paul to open up his message by saying something that could actually disarm them. Hey, men of Athens... Just respect in that. I perceive that in all things, you guys are very religious. And very religious people like to be known by that and be spoken of in those kind of terms. You know, you're, I look around and many of you guys are just really religious. I can see it's part, it's, it's, it's part of your life completely. Every part of your life. You guys are religious. He knew that he would eventually need to get to the problem with what they believed. He would have to get to their idolatrous beliefs and their idolatrous practices. But he knew that a good starting point, and this is important for us as we're sharing our faith, is to meet people where they are. We've talked a lot about this over the last few weeks. The world is divided because people are very opinionated and they don't care where their audience is. It's all about you line up with me, you believe what I believe, like right now. 
And as Christians, we want people to believe what we believe. But how do we approach them? What's love look like? What's grace look like? What's patience look like? This is a great example of that. So he, he, he says something that would disarm them. Then he, he, he does something to establish, you know, common ground. Hey, I'm passing through here, your city. I'm looking at all of the objects of your worship, and I, I find this one altar. And they're like, oh, man, he's so observant of all of our, you know, buildings and cool stuff and our statues and stuff. And I'm sure that just kind of brought them in. And he goes, and I just realized this one just had this inscription below it. Like, you've covered all of your bases. It was like to the unknown God. Like you guys, you know, that's, that's really cool. I thought that was really something. This was brilliant because this would have aroused their interest while at the same time it would have given Paul an opportunity to explain his personal views about the God they didn't know. But he did know. And he would say, therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. That's who I want to talk about. I look around and I see right now. What do you you see right now when you look at modern day Athens in California? If you were just walking around, would you see Heaton? Would you see Dionysus? Would you see Eros? Those are the gods of pleasure. Hmm. Would you see Aphrodite? the goddess of sexuality, the worship of sex. Peleos, the god of emotions and feelings. Apollo, the god of music and entertainment. Mammon, the god of materialism. Eunomia, the god of legislation and human government. What would you see people worshiping? What would be their passion in our Athens of our day? And then what would you say? How could you disarm someone that's all about immorality? It's all about materialism. It's all about like politics and government. What would you say to them? How could you disarm them? What what common ground could you find? Where would you start the conversation? And then how could you bring God into that conversation? Again, every thinking person, I don't care what their belief system is, they they think of where to come from. Why am I here? And where am I going? And you could look at the philosophies of their day, the 12 Olympian gods of their day, the 400 minor gods of their day, and they didn't answer those questions. Christianity answers all three of them. Paul begins by defining God as a creator. And this ran contrary to what the Athenians believed. In both the Epicurean and Stoic philosophies, the idea of a creator was eliminated. And if you eliminate the idea of a god that can create, (laughs) you are like completely close to the one true living God that created all. Stoics, again, were pantheists that believed everything made up God. So material 
and, and, and whatnot. So God is creation, and they worship that. But again, whenever the idea of creator is eliminated, God, who is the creator, is going to be eliminated in that thinking. This is the problem with evolution. And I, I'm really glad that we're at a point in time where there's a lot more open-minded scientists out there that are looking at what science uses to base something as scientifically accurate. That this, this whole idea that it has to be observable and repeatable and, and testable. But evolution basically tells us, it teaches, its theory teaches that the origin of all things is through evolution. So it's this evolving motion that started with a bang, if you will, the Big Bang, and then from that, here we are. Sadly, that's taught as a scientific fact, that something has been observable and repeatable and testable. Thus, it's taught in schools as science. It's not science, because that theory is not something you could prove through being observed or repeatable or testable. The evolutionary theory, it, the basis of it, evolves by saying everything began with a lesser ordered state and is evolving into a greater ordered state. You understand that. So you go from the tadpole to the monkey to you. Here we are. Even though we have great minds out there that have studied the second law of thermodynamics that says otherwise. What does that mean, Lance? That means that if I took a piece of metal right now, just metal, I didn't paint it, I didn't put anything on it, I just set it out. In two years, that thing, we're going to go, it's decaying. That's the second law of thermodynamics. You don't need a piece of metal, you can look in a mirror. Amen. Anybody here living more and more years? You're like, oh yeah, man, I'm evolving into, I'm, I'm going to be around forever. No, you're looking in the mirror like I am, if you're in your 40s like me, and you're like, I am like... <laughs> This tent is subject to the second law of dynamics. The chair you're sitting in is second. You know how many times you've had to paint things? That, that's just logic. It, just, it, it tells you when you listen to that that the evolutionary theory is flawed at its core. Okay, so then we're going to get into this whole, you know, fossil record. And in a fossil record, because it's millions and billions of years, we can see the evolution from one life to another form of life. There's not one example of that. The fossil record now says the, 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 the opposite of that, the exact opposite of that. But you're still sending your kids to schools, public schools, public institutions that are teaching this as science, as a fact, and it's a lie. Why is it so prominent? Because it's Satan's way of ruling God out of the equation. He wants to make you a Stoic or an Epicurean. He doesn't want you to be a Christian. He doesn't want you to think and line up with biblical thinking. He doesn't want you to open the first page. You don't even have to go past the first page. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Settle deal. I used to get so much of a better reaction out of that when I taught that like 20 years ago. Yeah! I'm on board with you, Lance. You're like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I think I might have come from an ape and a tadpole. I'm not sure. There's so much science out there now. This whole, in, 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 in the word of God, in Colossians, it says about Jesus. By him, 
All things were created both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones, dominions, and rulers or authorities. And all things have not only been created by him and for him, but in him all things consist. Yet that means, and Paul's going to say it here too, that the one that created you sustained you. Okay? You and I, we look at each other. We're all handsome and beautiful, but we're a bunch of just atoms mushed together. But science has got this thing going on. They're like, you know, when we, we begin to, to look at, at an atom without getting into the whole neutrons and all, but if, if you look at the atom and you dissect an atom, you break this thing and you look at it, wait a minute, the, the, the molecular structure of an atom repels. Like charges repel. So if you took two, two magnets, I'm going to have the little boy and the little girl. Let's ready to get two, two magnets, try and push them together. And they just, ah, I can't push them together. That's how we're made up of. We're made up with things that, that repel. An atom repels by its nature. So scientists have to explain what's holding Lance together. Why doesn't he, like a nuclear bomb, go boom, boom, boom? One day we will, by the way. The whole earth. But why don't they do that right now? Why doesn't the earth do that right now? You know what they say? Oh, there's this thing called atomic glue. What aisle do I get that on in Home Depot? Atomic glue holding me together. Anything to rule out God. And so everybody believes this until you find Christian who's, who's going to do the research and they're going to break this down and they're going to look at the molecular structure of an atom and they're going to put it underneath a microscope and they're going to go, there's something here that holds this together. Like, part, like charges repel. This is this thing. And they're like, mm, we can't explain it. You know what they called it? Laminin. L-A-M-I-N-I-N. Google it. Not now, because you'll do that now. Don't do that now. But you'll look at laminin, the molecular structure of what makes up an atom. And you know what it looks like under a microscope? A cross. A cross. I don't know. I just think God's got a sense of humor. He's like, oh, I'm going to get these really smart guys laughing in a lab one day. And then this guy Lance is going to say it. Yeah, and then people can go, what's a trap? Paul was taking them to know this God. A God of detail, a God of order. A God that has created them. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's made everything. Because he's God, that makes everything. He's Lord or supreme over everything that he has created. He's just walking through the logical conclusions we should be drawing if indeed the God that I'm talking about that you don't know but I know has created everything. And now he gets a little more like, ooh, this could be touchy. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, verse 24. Hmm. All these structures around him, the Parthenon, all the idols, all the temples, he... he this God I'm talking about? No, no, no. He, he, he doesn't dwell in that kind of stuff. You think your Greek gods are all about... No, 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 no. He, he, he's too great and too just to be housed in man-made temples. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life and breath and all things. Oh. You guys carve your little idols with your hands. And you worship that. No, 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 no. The, the, the God who creates is the God that sustains, the God that provides. And his point to these really smart guys, 
It would be absurd to imagine that God that creates the universe and creates us should be like served by human hands as though he needed something with us. If God is God, then he is all self-sufficient. He needs nothing that man supplies. No temple can contain him. He doesn't need the services that, you know, man would offer in those temples. In two brief statements, Paul completely wiped out the entire religious belief system in Greece. If God is who God is, it is God who gives to us what we need, life and breath and all things. Some of us as Christians, we need to just pause for a minute and go, oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we're busy. And we give ourselves way too much credit for things that should be, well, God kept me on this planet another day. God gave me life another day. God gave me breath another day. God gave Scotty Joy life yesterday. She came into this world and was breathing and for, for those nine months in her, her mommy's womb was a living baby. She was, from the moment of conception is what I believe the Bible teaches us. And may she know this. And may she know her God. God gave me breath in all things. And he's, he has, this is where it gets really like, whoa, mind stretching. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of this earth. How many times do we run into people in modern day Athens and they, they're like, well, that's just for you. That's your beliefs. I'm different. I'm unique. I believe I came from a tadpole. I believe I made myself. I, whatever their beliefs are. No, 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 no. From one bloodline, God created one man and one woman, and from that bloodline, we are all Adamic. We just are. And because of that, we're all born sinners, because Adam and Eve sinned before they conceived their first children, and so we are all born, born sinners. And, and, and he has determined our pre-appointed times. You might look at your life and think that you're so happening, but you rule God out, and you can go there. You bring God in, and you're like, wow, God like chose the day I would be born. Oh, and the boundaries of my habitation, even where I would be born. Your life just takes on a different meaning when you begin to line your belief system up with the word of God. You're like, oh, wait a minute, he created me. And he, he like even determined when I would be born and where I would live my life and the span of my life. In, in Hebrews 9.27, it says, it's once appointed for man to die. And after that's the judgment. I know it's hard for us to like believe that God is that sovereign that he's determined how many times my heart would beat, but he has. I know it's, it would probably change how I live through the pandemic if I really believed that God was in control of every one of my days, even during a pandemic, but it should. Can I hear one amen, Lee? Amen. amen. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul's just being logic with a bunch of really logical, with a bunch of really smart guys. And just getting them to just understand who God is and what he's done. They saw their gods as distant, detached. He's like, oh, no, no, no. He is not distant. 
He is not detached. He has, and he goes on to say, made from one blood, referring back to Adam, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And what he's trying to get them to see is that God creates with a purpose in mind, and you're part of that. He creates with a plan in mind, and you're part of that. He's trying to connect them to God's plan and see their place in God's plan. Like, God is so amazing. Like, we are the objects of his creation. Like, he created us with, like, a plan for us, when we would be born and where we would be living. Just understand who he is. Well, why would he want him to understand God in that sense? Why is it so important that we'd understand that, okay, God created us and like when we would be born and where we would be born and all of that? Well, knowing that is for this purpose in verse 27, so that we should seek the Lord in the hope that we might grope for him. That means search him out and find him. Because he's not far from each of us. And I have found that when I talk to people that are just godless, they're in their mind like, yeah, I believe that, you know, there's a God out there. But they haven't come to God on his terms. They haven't opened up to God and just opened up his word that that they see God as so far from them, so far removed. And no, he'll never be part of my existence. Doesn't matter what you believe. The Bible says the God who created you is very mindful of your existence. So much so that he created you. And he fashioned you. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in our mother's womb. By who? By him. In their days, in the ancient days, they had their, they had their God of Moloch. It goes back to ancient Israel. And then they just renamed the God. And it was the God of human sacrifice. It's like once a baby is born, we go on some tours, and there's certain cities we go through in, in the northern part of Israel, and we're like, you know, if you have a hard time stomaching some what they did with babies that were born and, and why, you might want to sit over here when we give you this Bible study. We're going to talk about the ancient God of Moloch. Today, if we walked around and we saw the God of human sacrifice in our society, we would say, look at the abortions. Look at these legislators that are trying to come up with a law that would allow a parent, once the baby's born, to just be sitting on its, out of the womb for a select number of time. And if they want to choose to help it live, let it live. If not, they have the legal right to let it die. We're living in this world. That's, that's Athens. They just, I don't want to get too graphic, but they really did some stuff that would turn your stomach with these babies. And we should hear about abortion. It should turn our stomach. We should hear about these other crazy, like. But that's where you go when you rule God as creator out of the equation. If I believe that God created me and created little Scotty, that she was, you know, and you and I were just like knit together in my mother's womb, your mother's womb. I'm like, that's sacred, man. That's the sanctity of life from the moment of conception. That's just where I go. I don't need to be a scientist to figure that out. I could just be a child of God and say thank you Amen. I was raised by two parents that actually believe I was a gift from God they questioned that in the junior high years but it was it was, it was just as true then as it was when I was born if you're listening to this study God wants you to hear this if you don't know him so you would seek him not just to seek him 
but to find him. But to find him. The psalmist would say, the heavens declare the glory of God. What's that mean, Lance? That means that God is screaming at us through his creation. It's me. Do not hug the tree or worship the tree. I let you see the tree so you could find me. I took all of my girls to Yosemite Valley many times when they're young, really, really young. And I take them to this one cool spot looking at this majestic valley and I go, hey, Kayla, daddy didn't make this. What? Daddy works really hard, but daddy didn't make any of this. I take him out at night, show him the stars. Daddy didn't do that. Grandpa Fred didn't do it. Grandpa Jack didn't do it. Their dads didn't do it. God did it. I put my hand there. God who made you and daddy and mommy, he did this. This is his creation. And he always, every time you come here, he wants you to know that and think of him. That's why we're looking at this. He's not far from any one of us. He's not a distant deity. For in him, verse 28, we live. He sustains us. We move. We have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, brilliant. He had heard about some of their poets talking about, oh, we're the offspring of God. He quoted them. Brilliant. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, Ties them in. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art of man's devising. Being that we are created beings of an eternal God that has created us from one blood for the purpose of seeking him and knowing him. A God that has sovereignly decreed history. Our times. The boundaries, the exact places for nations. And he's a God that sees us as his offspring. None of us should ever reduce him to some carbon image that we have made out of gold or silver or stone. That would be insulting to God and degrading to us to try and make or reduce him to an idol. God made us in his image. And it'd be foolish to go, that's God. Truly, he says in verse 30, these times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now, he expects something. He commands all men everywhere. Knowing this about him? To repent. That means whatever view you had about God that is wrong, turn. Turn from that. Okay, where I I turn from God, that means to repent. Okay, where do I go? Well, Because he's appointed a day at which he will judge the world in righteousness. Oh, that's motivation to turn. Who's going to judge me? By the man whom he has ordained. Notice he is capitalized. He, again, capitalized, has given assurance, speaking of deity, of this to all by raising him from the dead. I walked out here. You guys were singing about a resurrected Savior. I was like, man, guys are all excited about the right thing. I see people in modern-day Athens that we live in today, they're excited about so many things. Baseball season's about to start up. 
I'll, I'm not going to go too far in that because then you start kind of stepping on deity. But you do. You do. You ever talk to people when they're talking about their sports team and they use this we? We won, we won, we won this weekend. Dude, I didn't know you were on the Dodgers. College basketball. We, 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 we. You know, when we do funerals, we do funerals, you can tell what people worship. Even Christians. I believe we could totally be saved and be a Dodger fan and all that, right? I get it. I get it. Angel fan. Cover the bases here in L.A. Laker fan. Surfers. Foodies. We can really be into something. But when does that become an object of worship? When it takes over my passion. And that's all I talk about. It's what I live and breathe. That's what moves me. And we'll do these funerals. And I'll talk to family members sometimes. They'll say, on this day, brother such and such, he accepted the Lord. Okay, cool. Talk to me about that. Is a harvest crusader? Is this? Or maybe here? And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I'll do the person's funeral. And I, I, the, the few days later, and there's not a mention from the people around them about Jesus or his life in following the Lord. You walk outside, you look at all the pictures. You're like, hmm. That dude was a such and such fan, psycho fan of this or that, like into it. And everybody gets up here and somehow eternity starts to reflect what they were about. He's up in heaven right now and his Dodger blue, man, I just know it. Are you tracking with me? What's your identity? Your identity is tied to what you worship, even as Christians. I think we need to hear these words as much as the Athenians sometimes. Truly, these times of ignorance, God has overlooked. God has been gracious and merciful, Lance, long enough. Wake up. Amen. Wake up. But now he's like he's got your attention, Lance. And he's saying, whatever you've worshipped more than him, Would you just turn from that? If you're lost, you're listening here, you're not a Christian. Online, not a Christian. Whatever that is, that you've just, that's your life, that's your identity. Would you just turn from that and turn to Jesus? The man that's going to come to judge, the man that was ordained for that, but he's the one that also raised from the dead. And it says that, when they heard this about the resurrection from the dead, some mocked. They didn't take anything Paul was saying serious. Others said, we'll, we'll hear him again in this matter. They were not really convinced, but open to hear more. And then he departed from them. However, I like this. I'm so glad this is 34 here. Some men joined him and believed. It doesn't give the names of those who didn't believe. Whatever reasons. But it mentions this. Dionysius in Areopagite. Paul goes up. 
He's on Mars Hill. The message we gave that took 57 minutes took about seven. And he called him to repent. And one of the council members believed. One of the philosophers, one of the smart guys. It just says, he believed. And this, this other woman, for whatever reasons, Demarius and others with him, we'll get back to that or next time. They believed. Sometimes we have the privilege of sharing the Lord with people and we get to see the fruit of that. And they believe. They accept the Lord. I run into people all around town. Like, oh, yeah, I'll be going to church. Oh, great. When, how long have you been a Christian? I got saved, and they, they'll talk about a service. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. We're going to get up to heaven. Paul's going to be there in his glorified body. They said the ones that talked about Paul's stature in secular history. When I say he's a shorter guy. Bald head, crooked nose, bow-legged and whatnot. So don't look for that in heaven. Look for, man, I don't know, a guy with really straight legs, full head of hair, I don't know, really cool nose. But look for a guy that's probably blown away by people walking up to him and saying, thanks. Thanks for not buying into all the stuff everyone in my community was buying into. Thank you for loving me and my soul. More than that. Because it's hard to find people that were unique like that. Who just didn't make life with me about the gods of our day. There was a bigger God that they served. And you, Paul, you convinced me. You just, you just convinced me. And I want to thank you for being a faithful guy. I heard that a few cities before you got to Athens, they beat the living daylights out of you. Just with, they just beat you up, man. They just hammered you with those. I heard about that. You're in prison. Thank you for pushing through. Thank you for just not backing down. And everyone else was backing down and falling in line with the false gods of our day, you just stood up. Everyone was ruling out God as creator. You came and set the record straight. Thank you for that. Thank you for being bold enough and clear enough. And thank you for not like attacking us. Thank you that you just came in and you just, you just really knew your stuff. And you just really were believable. Thank you for that. And they're probably going to enter some, this is my family line that came to know Jesus because you came to, I don't know, Mars Hill. Thank you that 99.9% .9 of the people who got off a ship and came up to Mars Hill came to, to worship the gods up there. They were tourists. Everyone was into pleasure and materialism and sensuality and entertainment. And the next thing, they're filling their void with all... But th just thank you that you weren't that. And it showed when you spoke, it just made sense. Thank you for knowing the one true living God. Thank you for helping us know him. And you hear that up in heaven?
Lord, thank you for these rich scriptures and examples of just a world that's lost, what it looks like. How we just can see that and see the application in the world today and say, man, we want nothing to do with that. Thank you for Paul, who would never want the credit for any of this. We're not wanting to give him credit because it was you working in his life. Thank you for giving us the examples of what you do with your word, the truth about you when it's heard by people who are open. Thank you for the wise steps that Paul took that we can follow, learn from. Thank you for those that believed, those that would want to come here again. We thank you for that today and for the conversion that you'll bring here in this setting and earlier today as well. Lord, we thank you. And as we close out this service, if that's you, you're not a Christian here online or you'll listen to this study on a podcast or on an app and you don't know Jesus and you get to this part and you are like, I want to know him. I want to believe. I want to follow. The Bible talks about confessing. That's to agree with God. And so right now, wherever you're at, just call out to God. and Say, God, I believe. I believe as your word says I'm a sinner. Just tell God that. And I believe that you are God who has always been the creator of all. That you sent your son, as your word says, to die on a cross for me. Just tell Jesus that. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. Three days later, you rose from the dead. And so I give you my life right now. Forgive me of my sin. Save me. Come into my life. And if you've prayed those simple words to him and meant it, thank him for saving you. Oh, Father, continue. However many days left we have on this earth, continue to draw us close to you. Deal with the divided hearts. Take away any affection, Lord, for things that would compete with you. Bring life to your church and salvation to your church and power to your church. Continue to bring direction to the communities around this building, Lord, because of what we teach here. Thank you for the work you did this year already, this month, last week, this coming week. Thank you for last Wednesday night through Poncho. And just, you're so faithful. And may we be faithful to you in living this out. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I hear that amen. Well, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon.